Most of you know that Tom's been going through uh, Genesis in his sermon series. We've been in Genesis for uh, a good while now, I think since maybe May. And uh, so I'm going to be picking up uh, kind of where he left off last week. We're in Genesis 19. And uh, I told Tom yesterday that, you know, I said, of all the sermons you leave me with, you can't leave me with Sodom and Gomorrah on the, on the, uh, on the short notice. But he just laughed and smiled and went on about his way. So um, uh, Genesis 19 is our text this morning. And it is the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And uh, I think what we'll find is there's lots of uh, relevant, great stuff that we will learn about God and ourselves in this passage. So read with me Genesis 19. Hear God's word. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening. And these were the two angels coming to destroy the city. And Lot, who was Abraham's nephew, uh, Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. And when Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. He didn't know they were angels. He just thought they were visitors to the town. Then you may rise up and go early on your way. But they said, No, we'll spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. And so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called out to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we might know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance and shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn, but now he's become the judge. Now we'll deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men, that is the angels, they reached out their hands and brought Lot in the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they, were, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. And then the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here? Sons-in-laws, sons, daughters, anyone you have in the city, bring them out of the place for we're about to destroy it because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. And so Lot went out and he said to his sons-in-law who were to marry his daughters, up, get out of this place for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-laws to be jesting. And as morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. And so the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out, and they set him outside the city. Uh, this is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this portion of your word. As disturbing and uncomfortable and dark as it may seem, this is your word. And so, Father, now we pray, we pray that we might uh, come underneath this portion of your word, that we might uh, see you in your word, that we might worship you in your word, that we might be transformed to live new lives and to be new people 
uh, in this world uh, forever. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Well, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah is a fairly uncomfortable and dark uh, story. And it's one that if you've been around the church or not, or if you're a Christian or not, you've probably at least heard something uh, about it. And, And usually, I think, at least the ones I've heard, most of the sermons about Sodom kind of go, you know, like this. It, look, Sodom is a wicked, evil city. It's a wicked, evil culture. Um, and, and then they point out, look, our culture is wicked and evil, and God needs to destroy it uh, as well. And uh, that's kind of how the, the sermon goes, and it kind of calls us to look out in our culture, identify all the evil people, all the evil uh, uh, places, all the evil institutions, and uh, declare war on them and, and kind of condemn them. Uh, I want to take a little bit of a different tack and uh, ask about this man, Lot. Stories about this man, Lot, who lives in the city of Sodom. How does he live in a city like that? How does he respond to the people uh, in that city? Um, I think the reason I want to take a different tack is because I think as Christians... It's very often easy, and the culture often e- easily hears us. We're very good at pointing out the evil uh, in the world, pointing out the evil out there. And so often we're fairly poor at pointing out the evil in here, pointing out the evil uh, in our own hearts. But if you look at Sodom, if you just do a, just do a biblical search on a search engine sometime of Sodom, and what you'll find is that, first of all, you know, Sodom's sin wasn't just this sexual sin. It wasn't just homosexuality. Uh, it was a long pattern of unchecked progression. You read Ezekiel 16 and it says they started with pride. They started just by being people of pride. And then they moved into people of abundance. And then they forgot to take care of the poor and the needy. And then they uh, began to uh, not take care of anyone. Then they began to commit abominations. And so it, it just kind of goes on this long progress. And if you read further and further about who Sodom is in Scripture, you see that Sodom becomes paradigmatic. It becomes a picture or uh, 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 you know, a paradigm of basically every culture, every city. And in the end, it becomes paradigmatic of even the city of God, even of Jerusalem, even of the people of God. And so that's why I think it's even better to ask not just the question of what evil is going on out there, uh, but what evil is going on in here and how do we respond to it? How did Lot live in that city, and how should we live in our city? And, and I think what we're going to see about Lot is that uh, as he lives in Sodom, that instead of changing the city, the city really changes him. Instead of Lot transforming culture, the culture transforms Lot. Instead of Lot you know, making a difference, he becomes uh, actually different. And he's, he becomes what I would call a Christian chameleon. A Christian chameleon. I mean, you, you, you've all seen a chameleon, right? I mean, you know what it does. What does a chameleon do? It changes colors. It blends into whatever habitat uh, it gets into. The, the chameleon values security and uh, hiddenness uh, and protection, comfortability uh, above all else. Even over above, you know, obviously being bold and standing out and, and, uh, and receiving challenge. And so I want to take a look at how Lot becomes a Christian chameleon. How does he actually get there, and what does it look like, and, and, and what, do we, what do we get from this? Um, and, and if you look at this, you look at the pattern, there's kind of a pattern of progression. It doesn't just happen one day that, you know, Lot's kind of uh, uh, just one of the sodomites. Uh, he, he, he goes through a kind of a pattern. So if you look at Genesis, if you remember Tom's been preaching 
Uh, in the very beginning, Genesis 12 and 13, where was Abraham? I mean, where was Lot? Lot was with Abraham, right? He was with Abraham. He was with other people of God. He was a worshiper of God. He was part of the, you know, covenant family, covenant community, kind of all these big words. But if you look at the progression, uh, and it should come up on the screen here, you see a progression from Genesis 13 into our passage. Uh, the first verse, it says that uh, Abram settled in the land of Canaan while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. And the, the wording there is that he's kind of on the edge of the city. He's not in the city yet. He's on the edge of the city. Uh, we get to 1412. It says, they also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom. So now he's moved from the edge to the center uh, of the city. And then it says, uh, the, the two angels came, fr- uh, came to Sodom in the evening and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. The gate was a place of promise. The gate was a place, was a place where all the, all the judges sat. The, the prominent people of the city, the ones who were well-known and, and, and loved, sat uh, there in the city. And, and so you see this progression of Lot going from the edge to the middle of the city to prominence in the city. And, and the first thing we, we got to see is that the text is not saying it's bad for Lot to go into the city. In fact, that's a good thing. We have to live in the world. We have to live in the cities. We have to live in the midst of these things. But what you get from the text is that it, it's not that it's wrong that lot has moved into the heart of the city what has become wrong is that the heart of the city has moved into lot and into his family and that's what you that's what we're going to see we, we get this he's isolated himself from abram and the rest of the people he has no community and he thinks he, he's arrogantly thinks he can go it alone and he begins this progression not to change the city but to basically be changed uh, by the city um and now, if we look at that, we might kind of be willing to give Lot a break, right? I mean, let's just, let's be very fair about it and say, all right, maybe Lot is just, you know, he's moving in, he's building relationships, he's getting to know people, and then we're going to see him, you know, really shine later, see him really make a difference, really, you know, start to uh, um, demonstrate and live out the gospel in a different way. But the problem with that is, look at Lot and his own family. Look at the culture that Lot has created in his own family. Look at Genesis uh, 19. Uh, 12 to 14. It says, The men, or the angels, they said to Lot, Do you have anybody else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, anybody in the city? Bring them out. We're going to destroy this place because the outcries become great before the Lord. And then verse 14 says, Lot went out. So he goes out, gets his family, sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters. He says, Up, get out of this place. The Lord is about to destroy the city. How did they respond to him? But it seemed to his sons-in-law that he was jesting. It seemed that he was just telling a joke. You know, when, th- when something finally happened that moved Lot to actually demonstrate the reality of his faith, it just seemed like a joke because he had not built a culture of godliness within his own family, much less the culture, but not even within his own family. And the problem is that Lot wasn't simply being a chameleon, but he's build, building chameleons. For most of us, the greatest cultural impact, the greatest significance that we will have in our lives will be in our families. Most of us will not be billionaires and fun causes. Most of us will not be media moguls. Most of us will not be um, you know, high-profile cultural impact. The greatest significance moguls. Most of us will not be um, you know, high-profile politicians or... Uh, anything like that, though, it's great if you are, and it's great if you uh, are a mover and a shaker in our culture. Most of us won't be there, but most of us will be mothers or fathers or grandparents. Even if you're not married, 
You're probably a brother or a sister. You have nephews and nieces. The greatest significance, the greatest cultural impact we will have will be in our own families. And yet, Lot's family has no understanding of the reality of his faith. It means nothing to them when he comes to talk. They think he's telling a joke because he's never, ever communicated to them that the most central part of his life, the most central reality in his life is God. They have no awareness of his true values because he's become a chameleon. He's blended in. He's not only being a chameleon, he's building chameleons in his own family. And I, I think this is a, this is, I take this as a serious charge to myself and a serious charge to us as men. I think this is a charge to men about our families. Um, what are we building? And I, I thought about myself and I thought I, I spent a lot of time thinking and putting energy into uh, my work, uh, into uh, other things, into building you know, my career and the ministry that I have and whatever. And how much time am I spending building my children, building into my wife? Or am I building them into cultural chameleons that just kind of blend into the background of our world? It's an important... Or am I building them into cultural chameleons that just kind of blend into the background of our world? It's an important question. And, and honestly, I think it's, I think personally for me, it's easiest to be the biggest chameleon in my own house, with my own family. You know, it's, it's actually a lot easier for me to stand up here or at the hospital bed or, or where in church to lead and to teach and to, you know, demonstrate the gospel. It's a lot harder with my family, honestly, because they live with me. You know, they know who I am. They know the reality of my sin. They know uh, that, that, uh, that I'm a hypocrite. They know these things. It's a lot harder with my family, family honestly. Because they live with me. You know, they know who I am. They know the reality of my sin. They know uh, that, that, uh, that I'm a hypocrite. They know these things about me. They see me day in, day out under the same roof. So it's hard to be courageous and lead spiritually uh, in the home. And uh, what we find is that that's what God's calling us to anyway, to take initiative and to lead not out of, I'm the greatest Christian, I'm a pastor, I'm whatever, I'm righteous, to lead out of repentance and humility. My wife and my kids and your wife and your kids need to see you repent. That's what they need to see more than anything else. They need to see a humble man leading in a humble way uh, in his family. They need to see us not, not, not building chameleons, but building people uh, who have a reality. There's a reality of God, a reality of Jesus in the home. So, uh, you, you see that hasn't happened when Lot with Lot. And what happens is that as his progression goes down, you know the the frog in the pot. You know it's kind of the, the heat keeps getting turned up a little more, a little more until the water's you know getting ready to boil. And what we see is that. What, what sin does, what being a cultural chameleon does, is it actually starts to cloud your judgment. It actually starts to distort things. Suddenly you can't see reality quite the way it should be. And suddenly uh, things that before would have seemed uh, unconscionable become conscionable or unthinkable become thinkable. Look what happens a lot in uh, 19, 4 to 9. 
It says, uh, before, you know, all the people, before they lay down and go to bed, basically, uh, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, young and old, all the people to the last man, they surrounded the house, they called out to Lot, where are these men that you ca- who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we can know them. And that really means sleep with, sleep with them. And Lot went out to the men at the entrance, and he shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, don't act so wickedly. So what's this compromise? Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Now that's a hard verse. Because basically he just does the most insane, illogical, unfathomable, immoral thing you can imagine. You can't have these men, but you can have my daughters. And as I looked at that, I thought, well, there's, there's no way. I don't relate to that at all because anybody that said that, you'd have to walk over my, bot, my dead body. There's no way I'm making that offer. There's no way you're getting in that house if I have any possibility to say about it. And I began to think about it a little more. You know, Lot was willing to offer up his children to the, the gods of that day, essentially, the gods of hospitality. And I know I wouldn't offer my children in that way, but I've often been willing to sacrifice them to the God of my work. The God of my ego, my career. The God of my work. Or the God of the TV and the messages that, 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 that they get there. I've often been willing to sacrifice them to those, uh, to those gods. And the destructive impact can be if that's a pattern, can be uh, as devastating. And so we see that Lot, you know, what sin does, what being a cultural chameleon does, is that suddenly you, be, you begin to have a distorted reality. You don't see things the way they really are anymore. And what at one time was unthinkable suddenly becomes thinkable. Uh, a lot of you guys made fun of me in the past for being from South Carolina, and I kind of wear that as a badge of honor. And... Uh, one reason to make fun of us was recently was because of our governor, and you guys probably heard that whole story. And you know how he had an uh, had an affair with his uh, some mistress in Argentina, and you know cheated on his wife and his family. Um, but just to talk about how does sin cloud your mind? I mean, what was his what was his excuse? As he he basically he's the governor of a state, and he leaves the state for a week to go see his mistress. And he doesn't put anybody else in charge. He doesn't come up with any valid story, no excuses. He, he says he's going to, uh, his staff thinks they heard, overheard him say he was going to hike on the Appalachian Trail. How can you not get caught in that kind of situation? I mean, there's no way you're getting through that without, without getting caught. Uh, and what you see is that an ordinarily rational, intelligent man, when he begins to be captured over and over by sin, becomes to do things, the, think, the unthinkable becomes thinkable. Uh, what, what, what was rational judgment becomes totally irrational. And, and even, you can't even cover the tracks of your own sin in that way. It becomes, you become so blinded. That's what, that's what it does. It creates, uh, blindness. So that's what we've seen in, in, in Lot. He's arrogantly isolated himself. He fails to take action in his own family, clouds his judgment. And over time, he becomes a chameleon who's, uh, compromised. We see this most, most clearly, I think, in 1916. When the, they're coming out to get him and say, come on, get out of the sea. We're going to destroy the city now. And what does it say in verse 16? 
it's an amazing verse. They say we're, we're about to rain down the judgment of God. It is going to be liquid fire coming from heaven on this city. And verse 16, but he lingered. But he lingered. He waited. What is he waiting on? Why would he stay there? See the same thing in verse 26. I didn't read it earlier, but with, with, uh, with Lot's wife, very famous little part of the story. It says, verse 26, Lot's wife behind him looked back and became a pillar of salt. Now, when I was a kid, I had the impression of this that it was so disturbing because I thought, here she is running for the hills, running to get out of there, and, and she just wants to just sneak a little peek, you know, just, I mean, wouldn't you want to look back and just see this fire? I mean, it would just be interesting, if nothing else. I mean, if horror, horrific, gruesome, I don't know, but you'd at least want to get a sneak peek, right? And, and yet here she is just getting a little peek, and God's like, boom, done, you know, pillar of salt. But when you read the text, that's, that's not what's happened at all. What does it say? Lot's wife behind him. And actually, the judgment of the city doesn't start until Lot's way off and safe. Lot's wife behind him. In other words, she's basically on the edge of the city. Do I go or do I stay? Do I go or do I stay? It's not that she just got a glance. It's that she looked back and stayed on the city. Do I go or do I stay? And she really didn't know the answer uh, to that question. Why did Lot's wife stay? Why would you stay? God is raining down destruction. Jesus comments on this in uh, Luke 17. He gives a little commentary, and, and he's talking about the judgment day. And he says, on that day, let the one who is on the housetop with all his goods, all the possessions in the house, not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. In other words, Jesus' comment is that her possessions, you know, they were a pretty wealthy family, and it doesn't matter if you're wealthy or not, you still covet envy your possessions you know she was gonna have to leave her house she would have to leave everything that she had everything that she held dear you know i mean they didn't have iphones and ipods and stuff like that there but she they still had some pretty cool stuff i'm sure of whatever the ancient you know customs were she was gonna have to leave all that behind and so she dithered on the border because as jesus points out her possessions were even more important to her than avoiding the destruction she loved, she loved uh, her possessions even more than she loved her own life. That's the kind of irrationality that comes with chameleon Christianity. And what we see is that Lot and his wife had not just become part of the city, but the city had really become part of them. The dreams of the city became their dreams. The loves of the city became their loves. The idols of the city became their idols. Their gods, his gods. And what is the result? The result is chameleon Christianity. And when we become chameleons, we become simply like the culture, echoing the culture, imitating the culture, blending into the culture for our own safety and security and protection. What happens? We completely lose all cultural influence. We completely lose any ability to transform the culture, any ability to live or speak the gospel into uh, the culture. The truth is that we are either going to mark the culture or the culture around us will mark us. We will either point them to our gods or they're going to point us to theirs. Uh, one or the other will happen. When asked about the relationship of the, the church to the world, Dwight Moody said this. He said, the place for the ship is in the sea, but God help the ship if the sea gets into it. In other words, 
the place for us as Christians is in the city, in the culture, in the community. But God help us if they start building their gods in our hearts, if they start building their temples uh, in our lives, in our hearts, we become chameleon Christians. And, and I think when Christians look at this, quite often they, you know, we look out at the culture, look at the, the culture's getting degenerate, it's moving away from God, there's, you know, it's becoming secular, it's becoming post-Christian, all that's true. Uh, but often we say, you know, we lament the fact we don't have more power, more influence, more direction uh, in society. We wonder why. And often we think it's just because we don't have enough of something. There's something we, we need, you know, we need to have more this or that. And then we would finally be able to really lead, you know, and, and have influence in our culture. But I would suggest that our inability as Christians and as the church in the Western world to lead, change, transform, direct our culture in any any real positive way is not due to the fact that we don't have enough of the right politicians in office. It's not due to the fact that we don't have enough of the right uh, warriors in the culture war, not due to the fact that we don't have enough money in the banks, not due to the fact we don't have enough churches uh, in the streets, uh, not due to the fact we don't have enough good professors in the universities. Uh, It's mainly due to the fact that we don't have enough of God in our own lives. Lot does it change the culture because he's become like the culture? He now looks, uh, he looks like it. We don't transform the culture because we have succumbed to it. We're chameleons in the culture rather than, to use another animal analogy, salmon that swim upstream, that, that are in the stream, but they swim against the current tide, the current, uh, current culture. And I would say that uh, when we become a transformed people, we will have a transformed culture. When we become transformed people as the church, when God is the central reality of our lives, and when you know people don't think we're jesting like Lot, they thought about Lot, um, we'll have a transformed culture. Uh, I think so too often God simply is just an abstraction out there, and He rests too lightly to inconsequentially on us, on Christians, on the church. David Wells has said that for the church, God's truth is too distant. His grace is too ordinary. His judgment is too benign. His gospel is too easy. His Christ is too common. I want the church to be the church. I want it to embody a vibrant spirituality. I want the church to be an alternative to postmodern culture, not an echo, not a mere echo of it. I want a church that's bold to be different and unafraid to be faithful. A church that reflects an integral, undiminished confidence in the power of God's word. A church that can find in the midst of our present cultural breakdown the opportunity to be God's people in a world that has abandoned God. You hear what he's saying? Not chameleons. Not chameleon Christians. Don't be deluded in the pool of modern culture or seduced uh, by the latest trend or fad. He's saying when we become transformed people, we will have a transformed society, a transformed culture, a transformed uh, community. Um, and part of the reason we don't is because we have, in lots of ways, like a passionless Christianity. We have a Christianity that really hasn't gripped us, that really isn't, uh, you know, it hasn't gripped our minds, it hasn't grabbed our hearts, it hasn't animated uh, our bodies. It is, it, it's not affecting us in those types of ways. It's a passionless Christianity um, and that's what, that's what happens to chameleons, right? They just blend in. We lose your passion. You lose that vibrant spirituality. You lose that center. Uh, you simply begin uh, to, 
to blend in. And so for Lot, what began with arrogance and isolation, it leads to cloudy judgment and then compromise, and it ends in seduction, in seduction to the culture. If you think about it, you know, um, we pray... Uh, we prayed before the before the service, and 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 uh, somebody was praying for all the, the the persecuted church. So many areas of our church, many areas of the Christian world, are persecuted. One hundred sixty thousand Christians a year being killed for their faith. In the West, in America, that's not true. The biggest danger for us is not persecution; it's seduction. It's the long, slow boil. The long, you know, turning up the heat just a little bit, just a little bit, just a little bit. Before you know it. The culture is just a backdrop. It's just the matrix of who we are. It's just the, the reality. We don't even notice it anymore. We've just become chameleons blending, blending in. And so the question is, where, where are we being chameleons? Where are we blending in to remain safe? Where are we blending in to remain uh, comfortable, to remain untouched, uh, so to speak? Where are we, where have we become Christian uh, chameleons? What we find for for Abraham, uh, for Lot and his wife, is that the idols of the culture become the idols of their heart. And I think lots of times the idols of our culture become the idols of our heart without us even knowing it. We don't even really recognize it. And when you say the word idol, you just kind of go, oh, that's, that's a weird word. You know, like you get this image of like ancient people bowing down to statues that they made with their hands. You're kind of like, that's just kind of, you know, it's not really Western culture. It's way out, out there. What the Bible says is the idols are actually set up in our hearts. The temples of the idols are actually... Uh, there and present uh, in our heart and the, and the and scripture says that anything can be an idol and it says scripture basically says uh, an idol is, is is taking any good thing hear that not a bad thing not a terrible thing taking any good thing and making it the ultimate thing taking any good thing and making it the ultimate thing so you can make an idol out of your career or your money or you can make a, an idol out of your family or your kids or your husband or your wife you can make an idol out of your beauty your physical appearance you can make an idol out of your intelligence you can make uh, a, an idol out of um, just about anything really you can make an idol out of comfort and security you can even make an idol out of christian ministry an idol is basically anything that you look at and say if i have that if I have that, then I have meaning, then I have significance, then I have worth, then I have value, then, uh, then my identity is, is, is secure. That's what, that's what an idol is. That's what we see um, happening to Lot's wife, right? Why is Lot's wife not willing to leave? We, we recognize it should be a sad thing. She's losing her home and everything. So, but she's not just sorrowful over losing a good thing. She is devastated and paralyzed over losing her ultimate thing. It's not just about losing a good thing. She's not just sorrowful. She's devastated over losing the ultimate thing uh, in her life. And that's what really idolatry is. Uh, if you think about how common and often and unexamined these idols are in our life, and we can, we can name a bunch of them. I'll, I'll just go through a few. Um, I think we'll see how powerful they are. Uh, for many of us, you know, if you start asking the questions about the cultural background, what, why for many of us, why do we feel so anxious, so unnerved, so nervous, even paralyzed at work about our performance at work? Um, much of it is because we have an idolatry of people-pleasing with our boss or with our coworkers. We have to have their admiration, their respect, their affirmation, or else my life is not complete. Instead of having the affirmation 
and adulation of Christ and letting that uh, be enough. Um, why, we could ask, why, um, why do so many men uh, workaholics? Why are so many men workaholics? Is it not that the idols of the culture have become the idols of our heart? Um, the idol of either respect or acclaim or, you know, career building or money. Why are so many men alcoholics? Why do so many, uh, why do so many women um, idolize their families, their, their husbands, their kids, uh, to the point of smothering? Why, why the kid's success is the, is, the, is the mother's success. The kid's failure is the mother's success, failure. Her identity is just encapsulated there, and it can't be, um, can't be extracted. It's because there's an idolatry of family taking place in that situation. Um, and we could go on and on, but the idea is that basically if you want to create a recipe for disaster for your life, uh, in other words, you think by really pouring myself, giving every part of who I am to my family or every part of who I am to my work or every part of who I am to uh, my career, whatever, just put the, fill in the blank for yourself. By giving every part of that, then I can really have that. And what you find is with idolatry is the more you give, the more is demanded and the less is received. The more you give to that idol, the less you get. And, and what you'll find is the mother who idolizes her kids and smothers them incessantly, in the end, her relationship with her kids crumbles in her hand because they run away from her. The athlete who idolizes fame and, 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 and adulation and he, you know, he dopes and uses steroids or whatever to, to get there, in the end, he'll lose his body and he'll lose his honor and, his ad, and the acclaim because he will be known to be uh, uh, a cheater. Uh, men who idolize uh, women and sex and pornography and are addicted to pornography, which, by the way, even in the church is about 60%. Um, in the end, you lose all ability. If the addiction goes to the end, you lose all ability for sexual pleasure. It's very well documented in and out, inside, outside the Christian uh, church. And what you find is that the idols of our hearts, the idols of our culture will constantly demand more and more from us and give us less and less, um, less and less in return. And Jesus is the exact opposite. Jesus is the exact opposite. He gives his life for you for nothing in return. Our idols, like Lot's wife, basically demanded, it, 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 caused, it caused her destruction. It took her to the logical end of her life. It cost her her life. And yet Jesus says, I will give you my life. It's the complete opposite. And so the way around our idol is not to try harder, not to be more moral, not to be better people, but to preach the gospel to ourselves. A Christian mother will look at her children and say... By the way, I'm reading this in 1 Corinthians 1 the other day where it says, your life is with Christ in God and he is your wisdom, your reconciliation, your redemption. And so a Christian, Jesus is our life. A Christian mother will look at her kids and say, I love you, but you are not my life. A Christian lawyer will look at the courtroom or, the, or his work in general and say, I love you, but you are not my life. A pastor will look at his congregation and say, I love you, but you are not my life. Uh, and the list would go on and on. Look at the people that we need to have their affirmation from and say, you are not my life. I recommend 
not saying it out loud, saying it in your heart, you know, use it as something like that. Don't, don't walk up to your boss and just start that little conversation. But you say it in your heart because, like Lot's wife shows us, idols will demand your life, give you nothing in return. The end of idolatry and sin is destruction, just like any other addiction. An idol is an addiction of the heart, addiction of the soul. You know, if you've ever dealt with anyone with an addiction, if they never get unaddicted, it ends in destruction, just like Lot's wife. And you can't get around the judgment or the destruction in this passage. You can't get around the fact that God is holy and is going to rain down fire on the city to judge their, their wickedness. Because what he's showing is a picture, and Jesus refers to this in the end, this, that Sodom is a picture of the final judgment. We can't get around it, nor should we want to get around the fact that God is a judge. Many chameleon Christians want to not say that anymore because it's offensive. But we should want a God who is a judge. We should want a God who is holy. Why? Because if there is a God in heaven who watches what happens in Sodom, which was not only what we just saw, but child sacrifice, all kinds of things like that, if, we, if there's a God in heaven who watches that, who watches these men come out to sexually abuse these men and says, I don't care that God is not worthy of worship, that God, that God is not a just God. We need a God of judgment. We need a God who cares about the purity and the peace. And so God's wrath is not, it's not the cranky explosion of an old man. It's the settled disposition against impurity, against uh, the brokenness and sinfulness in his creation. And we see that in this passage. And yet, if we have a God who's a judge, a God who is holy, it, doesn't, it means very bad things for us. Because we, like Lot, deserve the same judgment that they have. And yet, what we see is that even in one of the most horrific, gruesome judgment passages in the Bible, we also have a God of mercy. What happens in verse 16 and 17? The guilty man Lot is rescued from the city. They take, it says, God being merciful, they seized him by the hand and dragged him out of the city. And so it creates this tension and it lasts all the way through the Old Testament from beginning to end, waiting for resolution, saying, how can God be just and holy and how can he be forgiving and gracious? And the answer comes in the person and the work of Christ. The answer comes in the cross where Jesus said, God said, there had to be payment. I'm a holy God. And Jesus said, I will make it. Jesus said, I will make that payment. Because God says, I would rather die than to see you suffer punishment. So he offers his own son for us.